Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father God, would you open the word to us today? We need this word. We as a people, we as individuals. Lord, we don't come for entertainment. We don't come out of interest's sake. We we want to know your word because our hearts are set to obey you. You're our Lord. You're You're our master and we are your disciples. And we want you, by your word, to disciple us and teach us. We want to become all we've been called to be as a people and as individuals. Come, Holy Spirit, and grace us to hear and to see. Grace me to speak your word and not mine. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll start with Acts 2. I'm going to start at um, just for uh, unity's sake. I'll start with 37. My comments will really begin at at 41 through 47. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and, Peter, uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized. Uh, actually, he says, upon the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the promise that Lord Jesus had spoken of only days before, the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This is the day of Pentecost. The disciples were gathered, remember this, on a rooftop with some kind of covering over them, 120 Plus, this was Pentecost. They were all there. This was a holy day. Probably 10,000 people in the streets uh, pouring toward the temple. All these narrow, windy stone streets are just full of people uh, moving all toward the center, moving toward the temple. And so all of this is going on. The holy, uh, this group of disciples was there having a morning prayer time, having a worship time, preparing themselves for Pentecost. And... The Holy Spirit came, and we've described what a beautiful, remarkable moment that was, and I I won't rehearse that. They began to speak in tongues, all of them. Well, in that that stone city, boy, the sound just echoes down every alleyway and every street. Everybody hears this, and people are going, what's that? And and thousands gather and begin to surround this this housetop, wherever it was uh, that they were on. That's no place to hold a, a, a conversation. That's not a place you can talk to everybody. So I'm, I'm certain, it, it doesn't say this, but it seems to me the only logical place and fits the picture that, as it emerges. Peter would have said somewhere along the line, let's meet at the, at the southern steps because it's not far away. And so they would have moved to the great southern steps of the temple, which are excavated now. First time Mary and I went there, they were just, it was just dirt. You didn't even know they were there. Uh, now when you go, we, can, we walk up them, we can sit on them. There's these great steps. It's just like a stone amphitheater. It's a huge thing going up to the temple. And Peter would have stood 
right there with the, with the 11 at the bottom and address this great crowd. And he's given them a sermon. And he's, he's told them, Jesus Christ is, he says, the resurrection, the ascension are all prophesied. And see, they, they had it in their minds that the Messiah would never die. And he points to the scripture and says, no, you're wrong. Not only did he die, but he was, it's prophesied he would come to life. And it's prophesied, we saw him ascended, that he would send into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. Well, thousands of people get it, and they, they say, you're right. It does say that. And then it's, oh, no, what have we done? We... Some of us in this crowd right now, we're part of the group saying, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on our head and our children. Oh, my goodness. They're, they're toast. And Jesus, Paul, Peter has made it clear they, they're toast. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's just nailed them to the wall. And they're all going, brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter gives that fabulous invitation. What do they need to do first? And what do they need to do second? Be baptized upon the name of Jesus. Peter is making the point that when you're baptized, it's a form of calling on Jesus for salvation. They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you, young and old, no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you live here or in Bithynia, everyone will receive the same gift. In fact, this will continue generation after generation after generation, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Is that clear? Couldn't be clearer, could it? Then how on earth did we lose this? All right, now to the text. This is a very challenging passage. It describes people living out their faith in a way that is so different from our own experience that it leaves us confused or even suspicious. Their lifestyle was was radical and we might feel the need to explain it away as an initial burst of enthusiasm which would soon be dimmed by the realities of life. I've even read someone who described it as a misguided attempt at communism. This, what I'm about to read you, the way they live together. Have anybody of you heard that comment? This was early attempt at communism. Just ridiculous. Almost everyone who comments on this passage assures us that we don't have to follow in their footsteps. And of course that's right. There is no law saying we have to live like that. But I think we make a terrific mistake if we simply dismiss this first expression of the church of Jesus Christ as a quaint experiment in naive zeal. Persecution did arise almost immediately and some of what they did had to change. But some of the most disturbing parts of what we see in our forefathers and mothers not only didn't disappear, but became vital to their survival, and I would add, maybe to ours. They deserve an honest hearing. After all, this is the church fresh from the hands of Jesus. This is what people who had talked to him only days earlier thought he wanted. This is what they believed pleased him. So, yes, of course, 
It will look different today. It has to. But the deep principles they were living ought not to change. Most have been forgotten over the past 2,000 years, but maybe it's time to remember them and let them live again. Let's have a look at how they lived. Verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. For us, the word perverse has a sexual tone. All, it, all the word is is crooked. The, the way of the Lord's a straight way, and you're walking everywhere but his way. That's what he just said. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and on that day there were added how many? 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And that's the word koinonia. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved." From the very first day of its existence, the church numbered in the multiple thousands. Luke explains how so many were cared for. He says they continually and energetically gathered in two different settings. First, there was the large public assembly held in the temple courtyard in the shade of the portico of Solomon. It was a daily gathering which drew many onlookers and was the place where the apostles had the opportunity to speak to everyone at once. Undoubtedly, they related memories of what Jesus said and did and taught the passages of scripture which he had explained to them. They also prayed for the sick and cast out demons just as Jesus had done in that same courtyard. In other words, they simply continued his ministry. This was also where much evangelism took place. But as we read on in the book of Acts, we see this public gathering came under growing persecution by temple officials until Stephen was stoned and open violence led by Saul of Tarsus drove them into hiding and caused many to flee Jerusalem. When we go to Israel today, one of the things we, we do if, if it's open and it it is if you go at a certain time in the morning, it's, it's pretty tricky for us to be allowed up there. But we go up on the Temple Mount. It's about 30-some acres of flat stone. It's this great, huge, flat area that's still there. I mean, the, 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 and, and last time we were there, it was so cool. We're standing here in this one area over toward the, 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 the area where the portico of Solomon was, the southern, southern side. Portico was just a great big colonnaded covering area so you could get out of the sun. It was beautiful. It was three stories, actually, and all this. But, it, but you, thousands of people could get under there, and they did. This is all kinds of action going on in this shade of this enormous uh, portico thing. And the church gathered there. And where, where we were standing, I was able to say to everybody, I said, now look right over here. Somewhere right here, Peter stood. 
and preached to thousands. Actually, somewhere right over here. I don't know exactly where. Jesus stood. And he preached here. And, and they were laying hands on the sick. And they were casting out devils. All of this going on right about here somewhere. They had their large gatherings at the temple. Everybody, thousands could gather. Peter, Andrew, James, John, who knows, would stand up and they start preaching. And what would they preach? Well, you know what they preached. They told about being with Jesus. They told what he did. They told the stuff he said. They tell about, I remember the time we were, just, we were having our, uh, that final P Passover meal and, and he put a towel around his waist and he washed our feet and he says, as I've done this to you, you do it to each other. And they, they explained stuff like that. It was easy what they preached. They preached Jesus. They preached the stuff that he taught them, all the passages, some of these, some of these prophetic passages. They'd open them up to everybody. So thousands are here. And then when the, when the sermon's done, there'd be some kind of invitation like Peter just gave. And, they, and who wants to receive the Lord? And people would every day. This was going on every day. People would go, I do. And they'd, and they'd pray for them, minister to them. And then I'll tell you what they did next. They didn't just leave them there and say, Read your Bible. Go to church. Here are five things to do now that you're a Christian. They, somebody said, hey, what are you doing for dinner? Uh, you got some place? Could you, could you have dinner with us tonight? And somebody invited that person. It was no law, but somebody invited that person. Why don't you come to dinner? And they were immediately pulled into the next level of gathering, which Luke calls the koinonia the koinonia, the communal life of the church. They were pulled into that. Nobody just stayed alone. You got pulled into this great family. And what does Luke say there? I'll start at verse 41, 42 again. Luke says they were continually and energetically pressing into Two things, both the teaching of the apostles, which is that great gathering we just talked about on that, on that temple mount, and something he calls koinonia, which is the word he uses to describe their shared life as a community. We see those first believers entering into a family-like commitment to each other. Please notice that they did not just get baptized and go on their way. They immediately became part of a dynamic pattern of communal life. Day after day in the temple courtyard in large public assemblies and day after day in homes where they ate and prayed together. The gatherings in the temple must have drawn many onlookers. There the apostles preached and taught and also prayed for the sick and cast out demons using exactly the same model as Jesus had done. Verse 43. The continued flow of miracles taking place through the apostles kept everyone profoundly aware that God is real. Jesus was not simply one more religious doctrine or school of philosophy. A person need only go to the temple on any given day and watch the sick healed or people being baptized in the Holy Spirit to be reminded that God is present and powerful and to realize he sees everything we do. Luke literally says, and fear came to every soul. Would you, you'll notice your translation probably doesn't say that. It must say something like awe. Or uh, I don't know what else they would use. Mine says awe. Everybody was <gasps> in awe. 
just plain old says, and fear came to every soul. Come on now. If you've just watched somebody who's been blind and their eyes are open, you've just watched somebody who's been deaf and they're suddenly hearing, you're watching these kinds of miracles go on, it sobers you. When you feel the power of God sweep over, when, you, when, when the Lord says, your hair's going up on your arms, you're conscious that wherever you go, he sees. But when I was a young person and I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, did that ever change my growing up years? No matter where I was, God was looking. And, and it, I mean, it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a legalistic thing. It wasn't some doctrine someone had told me. I knew he was there. <laughs> So it's like, hi, you know, we're going on a date, <laughs> you and me, and uh, it just changed everything. There's no hidden life when God is very real and vivid. It's when he gets distant that we have those hidden lives, and we think we can kind of live things and he doesn't see. If we realize no matter what we're doing, he's watching. It just does change. That's what, it, that's what Luke's saying. There was this fear of God. There was a purity. There was a holiness. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, we'll, we'll meet a couple that, who, who violate that pretty quickly. But they didn't turn out too well. Uh, yeah. And fear came to every soul. And his meaning is clear. People were very careful in the way they conducted themselves. Hidden, secretive sins weren't happening. People were conscious of being in God's presence. Doubt was at a low level. Verse 44. In these verses, Luke describes the depth of their communal life. He says, and all who believed upon it, that is the name of the Lord, had all things common as common property. In Acts 4.32, he's even more precise in the way he says it. Not one said any of his possessions was his own, but all things were common to them. Can you see why people are uncomfortable? I think all of us are. We read these passages and you go, oh, you're not saying I got to do that. (laughs) There's a thing here. It's, 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 It's pretty amazing what they're doing. Verse 45. And they were selling real estate, houses, fields, lands. The word means real estate, property, and other possessions, livestock, jewelry, heirlooms, And we're giving the revenue into a fund managed by the apostles who divided to all as anyone had need. They were living out Isaiah 58, 7. They were dividing their bread with the hungry. They were bringing homeless poor into the house. They were clothing the naked, caring for the impoverished, members of their own family. We should emphasize that none of this was planned or required. There were individual acts of generosity responding to genuine need. Do you see that? Individual acts of generosity. There was no plan. There was no law. Nobody was, this wasn't a cult. This was a move of in their hearts. But there was also a pattern. I'm going to show you that later. They did have, there was, there was things in their understanding that they were doing. There's 46. One of the main ways this sharing took place was by means of daily common meals. There must have been regular offerings taken for the food. Feeding a house full of guests each day would have cost way too much for any one family to afford. In this verse, Luke tells us again that their communal life was expressed in two gatherings. A large gathering in the temple for teaching, evangelism, and ministry. 
and small gatherings in private homes throughout the city where they ate and prayed together in an atmosphere filled with the joy of the Lord. He uses a word for joy. It's not just your run-of-the-mill word. It means the joy of the Lord. And then he says, and they had hearts without a stone. Hearts without a stone. And that's, I translate that sincere, warm love. Nothing hidden. There's no, I don't have a stone, a cold, hard part of me inside in my relationship with you. I just open my heart and I love you. How many would like to go to that church? Isn't that a cool church? I mean, they're radicals. I mean, come on. Um, but what a, what a great group. Verse 47. Luke tells us that their conversations were filled with praise to God. There was so much to give thanks for. Jesus had saved them by his death and resurrection, and he was mightily at work doing miracles among them. The more they prayed together, the more they saw God answer their prayers. The more they testified to answered prayer, the more everyone's faith grew. We had, an, we had an, a word of exhortation this morning exactly along those lines. Have you discovered, if you want to see miracles, start praying. And stay consistent in your prayers. When people say, I've never seen anything. You just told us your prayer life. <laughs> Serious. I don't, I'm trying. Your cynicism is nothing more than an admission. You don't have a clue how to pray. We'll, we'll, we love you. But I'm telling you, when you and I begin to pray, just try it. Track it. Get yourself a notebook and date it. And start holding those things up. And don't quit in your prayers. Just keep holding it before the Lord. Don't get frustrated with him. Don't say, why didn't you do it? Just, just keep right. Jesus, I'm trusting you. And watch what happens. I have. Have you? The answers are amazing. Sometimes he speaks the answer to me. Sometimes it just shows up sooner or later. And it's stunning. You think, Wow. And what happens is your faith level grows. And when you share that with others, say, you know, I've been praying for, for this situation. I've been praying for this situation. Let me tell you what God did. Well, the person who just heard that goes, maybe I'll try that. And there gets this atmosphere of prayer and, and, and praise and, and rising hope, rising faith, rising expectation of what God can do. It, it's, it's, it's a... It's, it's virtually a, like a, a cyclical thing that just kind of builds. That's what you see going on in these homes. And they're watching miracles up on the, on the temple mount. They're praying for family members. They're also probably praying themselves for stuff. And then they're coming together around a table, having dinner and saying, let me tell you, you know, we've been praying for my mom. You know, she's this Orthodox Jew. And she wants nothing to do with this. And, and the other day she said to me, you know, and, and they're starting to go, really? That's fabulous. Yes. You know, go Ruth. <laughs> this, is, this is their dinners. This is what's going on in those, those, those homes. They're having fun. They are having fun. Where did I leave that? Okay. Um, constant intercession must have been going on for unbelieving family and friends. And delighted announcements shared when spiritual breakthrough arrived. This combined with praise for what God was doing in the temple created an atmosphere of celebration and hope. It created an environment that was very attractive to everyone in the city. Luke says they had favor with all 
the people. And day after day, the Lord was adding the ones being saved. And then he literally says upon it, meaning by calling upon the name of the Lord. All through Luke has this underlying theme. Be baptized upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe upon the name of the Lord. For they who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah. Their reputation was excellent. And their gatherings were open and welcoming. So whether people came to faith in the temple gatherings or around a dining table listening to testimonies, they were immediately adopted into this growing spiritual family. I came across an article, and the article's entitled, China's Catholics Go to Camp. And uh, the woman who wrote it has been, is, is talking about the fact that there's this strange pressure in China where the, the Chinese government at times persecutes the church, and then other times kind of lightens up and is and increasingly kind of letting them, them do stuff. And then it cranks down again. And, and some parts of the country it does and it doesn't. And, and she's try, kind of trying to explain why is this going on, this kind of strange inconsistency. Because China, of course, is a communist government, an atheist, formerly an atheist government. And yet Christianity is growing very rapidly there. She says this. This legal ambiguity isn't great for Christian parents. Uh, in particular, the Chinese government doesn't want you passing the faith on to the children. You can your own, I guess, but you must not bring other children. <laughs> and they're having these camps, and the summer camps are very, I mean, people are pouring into them. Kids are just wanting to go, you know. So they're having this problem. So she says, this legal ambiguity isn't great for Christian parents, but at least they don't have it as bad as the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, or Buddhists in Tibet. There, the government sees a direct connection between religious education and political orientation. So regional laws explicitly prohibit religious teachings for minors and spell out stiff penalties. In, in, with, the, with the Muslims and with the Buddhists, when you become religious, you become politically active. Now, what did I say last week? And they become violent. And so the government just cranking down, man. This is, they spot this as a danger, and they're, they're against it. Listen here. In contrast, the ambiguity means Christians can often push the line on religious education for children. Those statistics aren't available. Programs for those under 18, that's the line, like the one in Wenzhou, are mushrooming around the country. Pastors and priests across China are reporting increased interest in faith among the young. What's the secret to this success? Perhaps Beijing has been overwhelmed by Christianity's rapid growth, which no amount of restrictions has curbed. In the past 15 years, the government estimates the number of Catholics has increased by more than 25% and, the, and Protestants by more than 60%. When the seed has life in it, what does it do? But more likely, Christians have gained greater freedoms by proving their value to society. The Chinese moral education that's offered in public schools focuses on rigid understanding of values like patriotism, work ethic, and self-reliance. Chinese Christians, on the other hand, are famous for their friendliness and charitable outreach. More crucially, they avoid politics, focusing more on deeds 
and their faith. Imagine that. This wins them a good reputation. Sometimes even among skeptical officials. That's why these Christians are puzzled that the state makes practicing their faith so uncertain. Well, the thing is they're afraid of all religion because of the other areas. As 17-year-old Maria says, the difference with religious education, the, the state-sponsored stuff, but I mean, pardon me, Christian education that they're getting, is it's a chance to love neighbors and just show care for friends. There are sometimes people who don't care about others, the secular world. And that is the source of corruption. So sometimes I don't understand why the government has to give limits to Christians because all we want to do is love people and care for the poor and the needy. And the government's having a hard time saying no to that too. And they have a good reputation and especially among the young. And they're bursting in their growth. People, that's how you change a society. Not by political activism. Now, I'm not saying don't vote. Please vote. At least most of you. You know, I, 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 I. See, that's the problem. That's the wrong attitude right there. It's the one you don't want to. Yeah. But, but, but if your hope is that we're going to vote this thing straight, that we're going to somehow clean the country by voting right and by winning this thing, you're absolutely delusional. It's already tipped. It has. And it's a matter now of going back to our roots and to what has always worked and is working today in parts of the world. You want persecution? Try China. And they're growing and they can't stop them. And now I'm hearing that high government officials, communist officials are becoming Christians. It's happening all over. It's happening. It has a huge reputation. Why? Because they say, this, this is great. Look what it does for people. Look at the love in them. Look at their honest. Look at their kindness. And then they look at the harsh society around them and then they look at Christians they go, I like that. That's what we need. Koinonia. The word Luke uses to describe the way they shared life as a community is koinonia. Let's say that. Koinonia. Isn't that a beautiful word? It's often translated into English by the word fellowship. But that word as we use it is far too weak. What they entered into was genuine communal life, which was not a new or foreign concept to them. To begin with, the disciples, and this number included many more than the 12, had been living as a community for the past three and a half years. They traveled together, shared meals, and had a common purse. You understand? Here's all, Jesus traveled with a whole group. They ate together. There was a common purse. They were already had been living for three and a half years in, in, a, in a religious community with Jesus. During those same years in Israel, there was also another group of Jews called Essenes who lived this way. Some lived near the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran where they had formed a religious community. They ate together studied the word together, prayed together, and pooled their earnings into a common fund. Does this sound familiar? 
Some are, uh, here are some ancient quotes describing them, the, the Essenes. This is by Philo. They despise riches. In vain would one search for, a greater, for one with a greater fortune than another. All of them loving frugality and hating luxury as a plague for body and soul. Imagine preaching that in America today. You'd be laughed out of the house. We have entirely gone to the fact that our religion is a way of becoming rich and successful. Here are people who say, Psh, it's hard on you. Money is corruption. Pursuit of riches is rot, rot your soul. We're going to put it in and, 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 and focus on God and live together in community. Here's a, here's a statement found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, a thing called the community rule. This is how they live together. All are to dine together. What, here, here's, here's Josephus. Whatever they receive as salary is not kept to themselves, but is deposited before them all. So the common fund. And no better example of communal life can be found than the Exodus. A million and a half people thought of themselves as a large extended family descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For 40 years, each person received an equal portion from a common basket of manna. Every morning before the sun grew hot, all would go out to gather the bread-like substance that appeared on the ground and placed what he or she gathered into a large, large common baskets. Then each person drew out an equal portion, a bowl full, so that he who gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. This is their history. This is their roots. Communism nonsense. They had for 40 years, their ancestors had lived in this kind of community. Where you wake up in the morning and before the sun gets hot, you've got to get out and there's this strange crusty carbohydrate on the ground. Tastes like Sesame Street seeds, and it's not street. <laughs> and, and it's sweet, apparently. So, or coriander seeds, another one. And, and so they, you go out, and young and old, men and women, everybody go, well, here we go, we're going to go out and get, get, the, get the stuff. And so you know the young ones are just grabbing it up and throwing it in this common basket. And so there's some old people going, oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, you know, boof. Oh, just a minute, I'll get it. Oh. So some are doing handfuls of this stuff, and some are just putting a little bit in there, you know. Oh. But when now, when the gathering's done, every person has, has a bowl, a certain basket, actually. And everyone ta- dips in and takes their bowl full. So whether you gathered a ton of it today or you barely gathered any, Everyone comes away with the same amount of food for the day. You want to call that communism? Or do you want to call it family? How about calling it family? How about saying whether we're strong or, or weak, whether we're young or old, we're all in this together. You're mine and I'm yours. I'll do my part, you do yours. That's what happened to them. That's how they start living. The, the, you're my family now. You're my brother and sister in Christ. And this is real. And we're in this for, for eternity now. This is the real Savior. The Messiah has come. 
and you're mine. And if you don't have enough to eat, well, I'm going to take care of that if I can. There's nothing more complicated than that. It's powerful love at work. The apostles did not impose this kind of communal life on believers. But they did model it. They simply kept living the way they'd lived with Jesus. And the community sprung up around them. Almost spontaneously, or maybe we should say naturally. Everyone seemed to understand that Jesus expected them to continue the intense model of community which he had practiced with his own disciples. And that his call to leave everything and follow him was still in effect. And maybe they realized that once again, like their ancestors, they too were wandering in a wilderness on their way to a promised land. Here are the basic principles I see. Now you tell me if I've stretched anything. Is this what you see? Number one, becoming a Christian involved dramatic change of lifestyle. A person entered into a family-like community. Is that true? Number two, their koinonia was not forced upon them or based on rules. People were drawn together by love. Is that true? Number three, they regularly met in one large group for teaching, evangelism, and ministry, and in many small groups to eat and pray together. Is that true? They gave generously to the poor at a level we might think unreasonable. Is that true? Oh, yeah, me too. Number five, prayer for the sick and demonized was a normal part of life. Yes or no? Yeah. Number six, they lived with a healthy fear of God. Number seven, their gatherings were marked by joy, warmth, and praise. Yes? Number eight, new believers were immediately welcomed into their community, undoubtedly by being invited to their house gatherings. To have a meal together. Yes? yes? And number nine. They had a great reputation in the city. And people were constantly drawn toward them. The challenge these early Christians placed before us is this. Which of these principles would be impossible for us to do today? I actually think there are some things they did which would be very hard for us to do today. At least the way they did them. Eating daily in someone's home is an example. Physically gathering every day is another. But beyond that, I think we'd be wise to let their example call us deeper. I think any step in that direction toward greater koinonia will dramatically increase the transformation of people's lives. The lonely, isolated way we live is destructive The lonely, isolated way we live is destructive. It's time for each of us to ask, how can I move closer in relationship? It's time to discover 21st century koinonia. Have I ever seen this? Where have I ever seen people live in community? Actually, the first thing that comes to my mind is summer mission. For a week, we actually do. And uh, you eat together, you pray together, you work together, young and old. And it is, frankly, the happiest week of my, my, my year. Uh, and I've, I've had other people. I had one guy, I said, you've got to go to this. He, was, he lost his wife, and 
he was just really struggling. I said, I'm not even giving you a choice. You, you sign up, you will go to summer mission. And uh, you know, all right. And, and, and uh, at the end of the mission, I said, so how was it? He says, all I can do is hardly wait till next year. He was, here he was. He just flowered. He just, just in the middle, all of a sudden, he wasn't alone anymore. We so, we're gregarious people. God made us to be with each other. God made us have a natural draw to community. And then when it, because of the sin and the failures and the issues that we have, we all get, we get separated and how much we need each other. When Mary and I were um, one of the first, well, I, we were youth ministers at a church, but when we got ordained in the, in the, in the Presbyterian church, we went uh, down to San Diego and uh, there was a, is a church out uh, east of San Diego, about 700 member of Presbyterian Church, and, and uh, I was the assistant minister. And you wouldn't think, I mean, forgive me, you, you got your pictures of, of Presbyterians, but, but this Presbyterian Church had gone through a powerful charismatic renewal. And one of the things that had emerged in it was communities spontaneously, no, there was no rule, there was no, no nothing. They just wanted to be together. And so they, I don't remember how many there were, but there were a number of them. It wasn't just uh, one or two. It was, it was a number of them, and much of it was with the young, young marrieds, young singles, and they would, they would live in community. What did that mean? It wasn't some cult thing, but it, they, would, they, would, uh, they would have their communities. If... If people had empty bedrooms, they would, they would open those. They'd be single people. They, they knew the uh, code for how many people you can have in a house. Uh, the, the, the way the cities control how many people live in a house is they say you, have to, you can't have more than X number of people related, who are not related by blood uh, who share the same kitchen. And so actually we discussed adding kitchens and, and it was, you know, it was all kinds of things because they kept putting people in houses and, and, and um, so we were always dancing around the edges of the, of the, <laughs> the city codes and we, we did honor them, I think. And, uh, but they would, they would eat together, they'd study the Bible together. Um, I don't recall that they, they, they all came together every, every day. Um, some, of course, were living together in, in, in these homes. Maybe a married couple and then all their bedrooms and family room downstairs, everything else had people staying in it. And, and then the rest of the community would all come and there'd be potluck meals. And Mary and I got just pulled into those, of course, and invited to, to be there. And I, I can, what I remember is, is virtually a physical, tangible feeling of being loved. It was a stunning environment. It was so much fun. It, it, was, it was just, everybody's just laughing and talking and you're eating and, and, and then you're praying together and, you're, and they're all serious about the Lord. They've all been, as I said, they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're Pentecostal, Presbyterian. And they're just, they're, their worship was beautiful and they love the Lord. What an environment. I, one of the hardest things when we, we, God called us out is to leave that, that church, to leave the love. I, I mean, you love me very, and love us very much. I'll never forget the feeling of the love in that community because they just did it all the time. It was just part of who they were. It was so beautiful. There was, other, there was actually a Baptist church down in National City. They were doing it, and I'll tell you who else was doing it, and probably who set the model in Ottawa's was Calvary Chapel. In those days, Calvary Chapel was reaching so many drug addicts 
So many really broken people. And they, again, no laws, no rules. You didn't have to do anything. This was spontaneous. People would start having men's houses and women's houses. And they would, again, pack as many as they could in a house. The only thing, I, if I recall, Calvary Chapel did is they give them a, a library of, of cassette tapes and a player so they could, they could listen. And they would, they would, people would gather for Bible studies, in those cases, often morning and evening. They'd, they'd eat together. They'd then go out and work, you know, and then they'd come back. And you took these people who were lonely, drug-addicted, uh, really spaced out in some cases, and as they got in the word and as they got in community, they really healed and came together and became you know, productive, happy, effective people. We live way too much alone. We take somebody who's a drug addict or got some serious addiction and say, you know, read your Bible, go to church, God be with you. And the guy you know, is just full of troubles. So much needs someone, a family around them, not not control, just relationship. So much needs that for healing. When we went to Oak Harbor, Mary and I, we, we started a, a, a men's house. We called it Timothy House. And it very soon packed solid. I mean, I'm sure we didn't, we didn't even check the codes there. Um, you know, why bother? And, uh, and then we got so many men, we ended up renting the house next door and we called it Second Timothy. And, uh, <laughs> and first and second Timothy. And, and uh, you, you know who was the, was the papa of this whole thing? It was Scott Dungan. Yeah. And, and, and we ended up having the inmates outnumbering the, uh, uh, the administration. I mean, we, we, didn't have, we didn't know how to do it. And so we, we had some, some revolutions and all. And, and I, we finally had to shut it down. But that, that was our ignorance. But even then, the need for it and the hunger for it, we, we very quickly had way too many people who wanted to live in community than we knew how to handle. The need is there. The need is there. I think as time goes on, I think people are, and as our economy goes on, I think people may well be opening spare bedrooms and welcoming people in. I think we'll need to learn how to do that and do it well. We are trying to take steps. I'm not putting this out for an interest's sake. The question before us is, what can you and I individually, what can we corporately, what steps can we reasonably take where we approximate those values? In the 21st century, not forming a cult, but how can we live koinonia? Why? Because I'm telling you, when when people love each other like that, when there's a trust level like that, there's an an anointing and a power of God that amps up way more than just... If if what we treat church is religious theater, yeah, I go there because, yeah, I think it's got the best, whatever. You know, and we just sit there and, and, and sort of do religious theater... And then go home, get in our cars, live alone. And then come back and sit in the theater and watch the show. If that's it, no, there's no, I mean, you can, you can do the best you can, but you'll really never have the kind of anointing in life and life transformation they had. It does have to happen in community. We desperately need each other. 
We need each other talking together, eating together, praying for each other, sharing needs with each other. We need that. So how do we do it? And, and I, keep, I hesitate to say this, but we are, we've started after-service fellowship at the Saturday evening and at the 1130, because, and the only thing is the parking issues. We must do something for this service as well. And I keep saying that, but people have been on vacation. So it's been an issue uh, logistically this summer. We are. We do have our eye on this. Last night, the fellowship. Uh, everybody goes out, and, and, and hundreds of people go in there and sit and talk. And I just watch people sitting with each other and talking late into the evening. You know, people having heart-to-heart talks. People that didn't really know each other. Just having real deep talks with each other. and Praying with each other. I get to sit with a bunch of young people because I'm pretty cool. And, and <laughs> they, they all really want to hang with me. And, and uh, they were explaining to me Facebook. And, um, <laughs> but what fun. What fun. I, I had one woman come up to me and say, she says, I have so longed for this. She says, I'm driving down from Kirkland. And she says, you know, I think I'm going to move. Because <laughs> she says, I have so been looking for this. What? Not my sermons. For fellowship. For, to belong to a people who love each other, who enjoy being with each other, who pray for each other and share testimonies with each other. We've longed to be together. I believe, and I've studied this passage for the last two weeks, trying to make sure I understood it. Because I want whatever those principles are, how do we do it in the the 21st century? This is my last point. When Paul and the Bible was written, there were about 56,000 miles of Roman roads. Imagine that. The Romans had built, I mean, real roads, stone roads, 56,000 miles. They had covered all these routes so their armies could get where they needed to go and so commerce could take place. All kinds of trouble went down those roads, but so did the gospel. God had provided so that Paul and Peter and, who, and, and Matthias and everybody, so they could travel, so the gospel could spread throughout that entire region. There were roads. Every generation, God makes a way for his gospel to go forward. Yes, the enemy uses it, but so does the Lord. Do we have the equivalent of Roman roads given to our generation. What has God given us that allows this free flow of communication and this expansiveness? He's given us the internet. Now, horrible things go across the internet, but so does the gospel. We, you, you and I can, if, if I can't meet with you today, I can still talk to you. I can text you. I can even have FaceTime with you. If you can't come to our group because you live, you live way too far away, we could put you there now with, with, simply a, with, a, with Skype or with a FaceTime. This last Christmas, our son couldn't be here. And he's down in, Temp, in, in Tempe, Arizona. And this is the first Christmas we'd not had Andrew. And, and so we took the, the, my laptop and we put it on Skype, plugged the thing in, and for hours, because we, we really do Christmas, for hours, we had Andrew and Danielle on that end, and 
I, we, you know, someone, my, my granddaughter's opening her presents. All right, Sophie's opening her presents. You know, there you go. Yes, I, say, say thank you, Uncle Andrew. Yes, thank you, okay. okay, so yeah. And we're moving it around and go, and then Andrew's, Andrew's opening on his end, you know, okay. So how's it looking? Hold it up. Oh yeah, that's a good on you. You know, all of this is going on with a thousand miles distance. I Skype once a month with South Africa. And not even just with one place in South Africa. I Skype with, 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 with a brother in Cape Town and one in East London. Every month. And this thing works. It's like you're just talking to somebody on the other side of the computer. There's not even a delay to it. So we're praying together. We're talking for hours. I've got friends in South Africa. I talk with pastors all the time. I know what they're doing. They know what I'm doing. South Africa. Man, if you can do South Africa, you can do Auburn. <laughs> huh? You see where I'm going with this? Now, God has given us Roman roads. You see it? Yeah, we live all over the place. We're busy. But God has given us Roman roads too. There are ways in our generation to talk with each other, to communicate with each other. We had a wedding. I'll just, I got to tell you that. You, I think we had a wedding here, it was so cool. The, one of the groomsmen was here by FaceTime. And they had him on an iPad, on a stool right over here. I'm serious. So neat. And so here was this stool, kind of a fancy stool, because it's a wedding. And they had the, they had the, they had the, the iPad, you know, up there. And so here was so-and-so, and we, and, we, and we all said, say hello, and we all go, hi, and he goes, eh, eh. you know, and I don't remember, I don't know where, where he was, I don't even remember who he was, but he was, he was with us on, 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 on FaceTime, and then when, the, when they process out, you know, and, and, and the, the groomsmen go over to the, to the bridesmaids, and they process down the aisle, well, so the, one groomsman picked up our, our friend and <laughs> marched down the aisle, with him like this and he's <laughs> as I thought to myself okay it's a brave new world I mean this is so cool you can do this now virtually distance isn't an issue don't think well we can't do that they all lived in a little town we have something too we got Roman roads we got a way that we can talk with each other even daily probably easier than they did Imagine that. We can live out the principles in our own way. We can live out the principles in our own way. The question is, will we seek and say, God, how do I take a step toward Koinonia? This isn't a little program, people. I've got a passion, don't you? I want revival. I want the real thing. I want to see in my generation that kind of life taking place. Do you? then what we're doing is just saying, oh, good God, how did, how did he live? What did they preach? What did they minister? What was there? Because we will do it too in the 21st century. We'll do it too our way. But we'll do what they did, oh God. And if we do, his blessing will come upon us the same as it came upon them. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Would you stand with me? Lord, we, we hear your word today. 
individually. We hear your word as a family. And we long to obey, to walk in the same joy, the same warmth, hearts without stone, the the same reputation, the same anointing of the spirit, the same fear of God. Lord, wherever we've grown so accustomed to church this way, the, the society go in the wrong direction, where we've grown cynical and full of doubt. Forgive us. Right now, we crucify that thing. And we say the truth is, Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The truth is, he will do in our generation everything he did in that generation. The truth is, he loves us as much as he loves them. The truth is, his hand is not short, his arm is not weak. That he can do all in our generation. And the truth is, living God, we yield to you our hearts. We yield to you our lives. We surrender to you as they did. And say, come, O God, help us in our weakness. Help us in our weariness. Help us follow and obey. And by faith we call that which is not as though it were. Thank you for the outpouring of the Spirit. Thank you for the reputation of of Jesus Christ. Of us, of his people being loving and full of joy. Thank you, Jesus, for for the winning the hearts of the young. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us to be a community. A koinonia. And glorifying our Lord. We believe for that. We declare it in Jesus' powerful name. If that's your prayer, if you will agree with me for that, would you say, yes, Lord. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.